Why Ukrainian universities need support? You're listening to the podcast Explaining Ukraine. Despite the war, many Ukrainian academics and students remain in the country and continue doing academic and research work. In this episode, we explain why Ukrainian universities and academics need support and why the war is a time for thinking, but also for action. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko, I'm Ukrainian philosopher and chief editor of ukraineworld.org, and in this episode I speak to Aaron James Wendland, Vision Fellow in Public Philosophy at King's College London and a Senior Research Fellow at Massey College, Toronto. In this episode we also talk about thinking and philosophy and what philosophical ideas can be important today. Aaron Wendland is organizing a benefit conference titled What Good is Philosophy? to raise the funds required to establish a center for civic engagement at Kyiv Mahila Academy, Ukraine's oldest university. Aaron Wendland, welcome to this podcast. Pleasure to be here. So uh, you're a person we've met in Kyiv several months ago and uh, you were a person who was interested and is interested uh, at kind of a changing the nature of how we think about Ukraine and how we also think about philosophy and thinking and making it much more proactive. What is the the roots of your of your interest in Ukraine in this part of the world? Sure, thanks for the question. Um I suppose my my interest goes back uh a little while I um I spent some time, my, my partner is Estonian, I spent some time um, living and teaching in Moscow, and I have some familiarity with sort of post-Soviet history and um, and the region more, more generally. And I ended up in Ukraine this past summer in, in part because I was in Canada on February 24th. And I was rather uncomfortable being in Canada at that point, in part because Canada is in some ways an ocean away from what is happening in Europe. And people here, unlike people, say, in Estonia or Poland or obviously Ukraine, um, they, they, people in Canada just don't have quite the same sort of understanding. There was a certain, you know, they, they thought something bad is happening here, but they seem kind of not to have their ability to sort of wrap their head around it. There was a certain kind of complacency, if you will, uh, amongst the people in Canada being so far away. And so on, on February 24th, I really felt this sort of anxiety, like, you know, this is something major is happening in, in world history and something terrible is happening. And the people here in my home country of Canada don't quite understand or appreciate the gravity of the situation. And a few months later, I was given the opportunity to go to Ukraine to do some reporting for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation and the Toronto Star. And I thought that this was an excellent opportunity for me to help introduce Canadians to life in Ukraine, a little bit about Ukrainian history, 
and in particular, sort of civilian life during the course of the conflict in Ukraine. Uh, I just thought that Canadians generally were unaware. And in some ways, Canadians take advantage of what Ukrainians are fighting for, or they take it for granted. Uh, Canada hasn't seen war in, since 1812. And uh, people here, I think, just have very little understanding. So I had this desire to go to Ukraine and report on civilian life in the country this past summer as a potentially a service to my fellow Canadians to help them see and understand what life is like in a country at war, and in particular, how the civilian population is responding to this crisis in Ukraine. So when you think about history, I mean, I, I think it's relatively easy for Ukrainians to understand and to see what is going on as a pivotal for the for the European history, because, I mean, many things that are happening right now in Ukraine, uh, the European history will depend on this. I think if Ukraine fails, then European Union will be over, because for that or this or that reason, Russia will try to expand further, and these are the goals which it actually uh, announced very early in 2021 that its goal is to divide Europe, to bring Europe to a kind of a Yalta uh, model of the world. Uh, but even even that, if you explain it to Europeans, to Western Europeans, uh, many people just don't realize it. Uh, many people don't don't think in that way. And I think if you talk to Canadians. Uh, it's it's even more difficult. Or if you talk to Australians, if you talk to Indians, if you talk to South Africans, uh, when you're asked why the Russian invasion and the Ukrainian resistance, why is it important for the world? Why is it important for the global history? What do you respond? Well, my, my response is that the Ukrainians are fighting for values in some ways we've taken for granted. Um, we've gotten complacent about them. When I was in Ukraine, I could really see and appreciate what the Ukrainians are fighting for. Freedom really means something uh, to Ukrainians. They have recent and tangible experience of life under, well, first in the Soviet period, but even in the post-Soviet period, they, they've been struggling and fighting for uh, something that people in Canada take for granted, namely liberal democracy. So when I talk to Canadians about this, I try to explain to them that, that you know, the people in Ukraine are fighting for things we take for granted. They're fighting for our way of life. And frankly, I think we should support them as much as we can because their fight in some ways is our fight. They, they are fighting for values that, that we have, that we live with every day and potentially take for granted in a way that the Ukrainians cannot. So this is this is what I say to them when they ask me what what why why should Canada get involved in this conflict that is an ocean away on another continent. In one of our previous podcasts with um, Tetiana Harkova, my co-host and my wife, she actually came across a very interesting thought: is that while Russia is so much focused on the past. Ukraine is rather focused on the future, definitely not the past, because the past was so tragic for us and, and we certainly don't want it to repeat. The Western world is rather focused on the present. It's like the eternal present is, is like a little bit an illusion that the world, the future is just a prolongation of, of the present and it will look 
like in 10, 20, 30 years in many aspects as it looked uh, as it looks now. And therefore this slowness of, of the reaction of some of the countries of the democratic world to this invasion, would you agree with that? I think there's something to be said for the focus on the present in Europe and for lack of a better term, well-established democracies. In some ways, I think they were or are sort of like we're at a we're in a good place. We are comfortable with where we're at. So let's just try and manage the present. We're not striving for higher ideals. Potentially, they they see that they've realized their ideals, however imperfectly, and it's a matter of managing them. And perhaps this is why they aren't looking to the future to the same extent. Whereas the Ukrainians see that they have something to strive for, and they're fighting for, and so are future oriented. Um, I'm not sure about the Russian reflection on the past. Maybe this is just a, a function of the fact that uh, they have nothing to look forward to in the future. And so all they do is look at the past. Uh, you are a person who is trying to make philosophy and thinking much more engaged, much more active. And, and, and this is the point where we meet, actually, because I'm also the, the person uh, who thinks in that way. Frankly speaking, in my case, it's it's not the not the trait of my personality. I'm not an active person at all. It's just that history moves us in that way, and and we are living in in, in during the time where there is no other option than this vita activa of Hannah Arendt. Uh, what is what is your driver? What is your driver to to develop this kind of engaged philosophy, engaged thinking? Sure. In in some ways, the um, my drive to both get into philosophy and then and then take it to a slightly more active level has to do with the reason I got into philosophy in the first place. Um, when I was young, I saw that there were problems not not in Canada quite like the problems that are that Ukrainians are facing today, um, and I thought, okay, there are these issues and political problems in the world, whatever, poverty and homelessness in, in Canada, for example, and a whole host of other problems. And I wasn't quite sure what the answer was to them or what the solution was. And so I began reading philosophy to help think about how to act. In a way, the my drive to get into philosophy was that, okay, well, there, there things need to be done, um, but what and how and why should we act in a particular way. And so I turned to philosophy for that. And in a way, I think I've now spent a fair bit of time studying philosophy and I have a clearer sense of the world and how it works. And if I were to get involved in politics, what my policy positions would be based on my study of philosophy. Um, one thing you mentioned there was history and that history places certain demands on you. You said you're not uh, an activist by disposition, but rather by circumstance. In some ways, this is what I've learned through my study of philosophy. And also, in some ways, it explains what I was doing in Ukraine. So there are a couple thinkers that influence my academic work and that ultimately influence my sort of more activist philosophy. Um, one of them is Emmanuel Levinas, the French Jewish thinker and Holocaust survivor. Uh, he talks about ethics as being infinitely demanding 
the basic idea here is that there are all kinds of uh, demands on your ability to act in the world. If you look around, there's all kinds of suffering. There's war in Ethiopia. There was an earthquake in Turkey. There's war in Ukraine. There's even on a uh, somewhere closer to home, there's poverty and homelessness in Canada. The family members are ill and so on. And there are all kinds of opportunities to act. But what Levinas and then his sort of existentialist counterparts, Kierkegaard, Heidegger, these people note is that although ethics may be infinitely demanding, there are all kinds of demands to act ethically, um, all kinds of things you can choose. You only have a limited ability to respond to all these demands for action. And that limited ability is some ways circumscribed by your history, where you find yourself, the particular place you're in, and then you act within that sphere. So in my case, uh, I was given the opportunity to go to Ukraine to report on civilian life there. And at this particular moment in my life, that seemed like the best and most responsible use of my time. Uh, and so in some ways, by Heidegger calls this notion thrownness. I was thrown into a particular situation. It presented me with options for ethical activity. And I thought going to Ukraine and reporting on it was the best use of my time at that particular point. Um, so my philosophy in some ways is influencing my activism in a very concrete and real way. Right. I, I really uh, admire this this admiration. Well, I share this admiration for, for Levinas. Uh, I don't share the admiration for Heidegger because maybe because I've studied him so so well when I was 20 years old. It, it's it's really uh, the the Meister aus Deutschland, as as um, uh, Rudiger Safransky called him, with a clear reference uh, to Paul Celan. So we we see that that potential conflict inside Heidegger, who supported Nazism in, in 1933. And frankly speaking, uh, when I was younger and I was more interested in, in these more theoretical things and, and how beautiful the thought might be, that decision um, uh, of, of Heidegger in 1933, I, I just... Uh, I, I can say that I didn't pay too much attention to it. But now... Of course, this is this is very serious. This decision is very serious, even though he then uh, moved away from this, although never actually denounced and explained why he was uh, close to the Nazi party at that time. But um, for, for me, the clear difference between Levinas and Heidegger is actually the question of personality. There is no personality in Heidegger, and that's the problem. There is... I mean, it, there is even no human being. There is the, this very strange concept of design, which which pulls you out of of human beings and uh, certainly out of individualities. This thinking in terms of epochs and not in terms of uh, particular humans. This denigration of biographies. I th I think I found it very very problematic right now, uh, especially when I look at the Russian philosophy. And by the way, Heidegger was much more welcome in Russia than elsewhere, and it seems to me much more than Levinas. I think there is certain proximity because um, this trend in the Russian philosophy, what Solovyov, Vladimir Solovyov, Russian philosopher of the 19th and early 20th century, called uh, 
of Siyadinstva, the pan-unity, these trend to erase the individual. And I think the great thing that um, existentialists do in the 20th century, uh, like Gabriel Marcel or Levinas or even Sartre, is just to bring individual back. Uh, I have the impression that we are again in the past decades in this um, in this you know epoch of of erasing the individual. The individuals are being erased in social networks, in big companies, in uh, in, uh, in in uh, in I don't know football fans clubs, in football club fan fan teams, in in some other things. Do you have this impression, and do you have the impression that Ukrainian resistance is also a kind of a rehabilitation of the individual effort? I mean, in, in some ways, the uh, the answer to, to your very last question, I think, is yes, the rehabilitation of the individual effort. I understand that uh, the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky, is fighting for his country is in, is in some way the embodiment of Ukraine, but he is also an individual character acting on the international stage. Um, and it shows the power of individual characters in history. Uh, so I think if, if there is this trend away from the individual or drowning out the individual and in social media and football fandom and whatever else, um, it's clear that, that that Zelensky represents a reassertion of, of the individual character in in history. Um, I also think you're you're right to point to the extent to which I guess Levinas was critical of Heidegger by focusing on individual ethical relations and the extent to which philosophy can't simply be an abstract discourse about the nature of being that for Levinas, at least his understanding of or reading of Heidegger was that um, our ability to sort of understand and interpret the world, um, what Heidegger calls the question of the meaning of being, is bound up in interpersonal relationships between other human beings. Levinas calls it the, the face-to-face encounter with the other. And it's through our interactions that the our interactions with other human beings, granted often on in collective projects through which the world becomes meaningful to us. So I think Levinas provides a corrective to Heidegger's abstract theorizing, even if Levinas's texts themselves can be very abstract and difficult. Um, And his emphasis, Levinas's, that is, on the responsibility we have to others is very compelling. He basically argues that who and what you are as a human being is determined by how you respond to the needs and the demands that other people place on you and you will be judged in some ways accordingly Um, you are your ethical ability to respond to others and that's how your identity is defined and i think that's a very sort of powerful idea and if you think about it it's also a compelling idea as in it motivates you to think well if who and what i am is determined by my ability to respond to the needs of others, then maybe I should be thinking about the needs of others more than I think just about myself. Um, although maybe this goes back to the more collectivist strand you you started with. Yeah, that's that's very interesting and 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 very important. And the the idea of responsibility, the idea that you always kind of respond in your in your life. You 
you know, this is shifting a little bit, right? Heidegger was focusing on the questioning, on the, on, on the idea of question. And Levinas mm -hmm. is rather focusing on the idea of response because the question is always there. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, the question is always there. The world is a question to you. Right. And um, this is also a very important, I think, when, when, uh, when thinking about this war and, for example, how people react is that the, the, the idea how we differentiate guilt and responsibility that we might not be guilty in something in this war, but we are responsible how we react on this. Mm -hmm. And the, the metaphor I liked very much is that imagine you are uh, you're in your apartment and then you open a door and you see a baby uh, uh, next to you. Uh, just somebody, somebody left a baby and uh, it's, it's now up to you. You're not guilty for this abandoned baby. It's not your baby. It's not you who, who, who left it. But now from this moment on, you're responsible. You cannot just uh, uh, pretend it's not yours. And I think this is a question we Ukrainians are asking to Russian society because many Russians, anti-Putinist or who not support this war, they're saying, okay, we're not guilty in this war. And our response is that, yeah, we, you're not guilty, maybe, but you're responsible. You're definitely responsible for that. Yeah, this is really this is a really nice thought. The the relationship in some ways between history and responsibility. So I think what Levinas learns from Heidegger is this idea of thrownness that you find yourself in a contingent circumstance that was not of your making. And Heidegger thinks that the contingency of history allows you to question your position in history and potentially do something new. But Levinas seems to be more much more focused on okay, you 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 we see this sort of contingent historical circumstance that you find yourself in. But now what are you going to do? And he calls for action in a way that Heidegger doesn't. Um, and so I think your example is, is very apt that you find yourself, when you walk into a building, there's an abandoned child. You're not guilty of the abandonment, but you have to take responsibility. I think that's a great example of, of sort of the phenomenon Levinas is talking about when, when we have to take responsibility for the, the demands that are placed on us, but these demands are always situated. They're in a particular place at a particular time, and we each have to rise to the occasion or not. We can obviously fail. Um, I think one of the things, very important things about responsibility, that actually it's um, it can it's a chain. There is a chain of responsibility. I mean, uh, that that people can inspire you with, with their actions. And um, like those people who are, this is what Ukrainian society is about, that you, you, you see a minority, initially it was a minority of active people who inspired other people who were otherwise, otherwise passive, passive. And this inspiration goes on and on. And uh, each responsible personality who is doing something, who went to the front line, who helps the army, who, who do, does something, is a question also to the other people and uh, a call to their responsibility. So we have kind of this change of responsibilities, which is which is very interesting. Which is, I think, the society is about. One thing that I'm I I think I'm kind of uh, uncomfortable with this philosophy with ethics of uh, otherness of the other, by by Martin Buber, by Levinas, by by Derrida, by by others is that it actually it doesn't pose a question where 
where are the limits of this otherness? And I think this is a trap in which the Western world went with Russia. Russia was uh, was claiming that, look, we are different. We are a different civilization. We are other. We are your other. We have our ethics. We have our sovereign democracy. We can do whatever we want. We don't want your uh, institutions. We, we don't want your um, your approach to the law, etc. And this is, of course, I mean, this is understandable. We are all different. We need to cherish our differences. But uh, this thinking of difference and otherness has its limits because... If you if you go very far, you just cross the border with or where where for example there is nothing in common between us, where there is nothing universal anymore, which where you know invading another country is just a way of otherness, a way of showing your otherness and uh, your other approaches to the ethics, and of, and I think we should we should kind of uh, fight against it and fighting against it. Uh, can be only possible where we find out a, a universality, a new universality behind or above this um, infinite otherness. What do you think? So, I mean, I think it's interesting. I almost want to flip this around and say, at least in my reading of, of sort of the Russian case, it, it, they, I think it does indicate a, a certain dangerousness in othering people. But it, it, the way I sort of understand the Russian case is that they've seen Ukraine as some kind of historical other with which they define their identity and then to use it to sort of create an us versus them uh, narrative where they see Ukraine as some kind of existential other that's an existential threat to the very existence of Russian identity. And so it creates this potentially artificial tension that then the Russian government uses to justify whatever they're doing to their people um, by setting up this sort of self-other dynamic and then putting them in conflict. So I think there's a, there is a danger of an us versus them thinking kind of built into the logic of self and other, uh, and it can be sort of exploited. And I suppose at least in, in the philosophical work, um, Levinas tries to push back against that danger or that worry, the potential hostility in the self-other relationship by bringing, again, the ethic, the idea of ethics in here. That is, the other is not set up as an enemy, but somebody you are responsible to. He talks about sort of vulnerability and your ability to help and act and do things to support others. Um, I'm not saying it's he, he necessarily gets it right here, but I think he's aware of the danger of creating this sort of self-other dynamic. And the way he tries to mitigate it is to say that what this self-other dynamic ultimately amounts to is a responsibility you have to take care of the other person. And I think that the real sort of philosophical step in Levinas here is that a failure to recognize the other person as a vulnerable person or a vulnerable people and to do what you can to support them is ultimately a negation of yourself. I think he's tipping his hat back to Hegel here with the idea that a certain self-recognition requires recognizing the dignity of other human beings. And so this is how Levinas tries to correct for the potential hostility between the self-other relationship. But I agree that there is a danger built into that logic. 
uh, a potential right. conflict between self and other. Right. Let, let's now move from these theory, uh, theoretical um, reflections, although it's, it's not at all just pure theory, because we mm -hmm. see the practical consequences of this. We see yeah. the practical consequences of the denial of the individual, Uh, because you, you just become a, a prisoner of a big uh, monster, be it Nazism or Stalinism or Putinism mm -hmm. or whatever. And we see the cons consequences of not recognizing the other or denying your responsibility. We see the consequences of also of, you know, absolutizing the otherness of yourself or of the other, uh, which actually cuts all the bridges of communication. These are all practical consequences which actually cost lots of human suffering, lots of human lives, and we need to understand that. Let's move to practical things. So you're you're preparing a big conference, uh, benefit conference for Ukraine, and uh, can you Tell me about this, and um, maybe we could announce on our podcast there will be so many interesting speakers. So uh, this is an opportunity to talk uh, about this a little bit in advance. Sure. Um, maybe maybe it's helpful to just kind of circle back to where we began as a story for how we get to the benefit conference for Ukraine. So when I was in Ukraine reporting this summer, Uh, the Wall Street Journal actually commissioned me to write a story on the state of higher education in Ukraine. And when I started doing research for this story, I realized that in some ways the Ukrainian academy faces incredible challenges. Uh, universities in the east of the country had been bombed. 7,000-plus academics had left the country. Um, And then the people who are still teaching in places like Kiev and Lviv are doing so under very difficult circumstances, not least because they're air raid sirens and um, they're, they're under constant threat living in a, a war-torn country, but also because you know some of their faculty have left. And uh, when I was interviewing rectors and deans, they told me without fail, we see all the support for Ukrainian academics who've left the country. And that's, it's good, it's, it's important to support refugees, but there was very little support for academics working in Ukraine. And I thought, in my case, this was another instance where, well, I could write this story or the situation potentially demands something more of me. Namely, I might be able to do something to help Ukrainian scholars uh, and students who are working in very difficult situations. So instead of writing the story, I decided to organize a, a benefit conference to generate some, some funding to support the work that you and your colleagues in Kyiv are, are doing during very difficult circumstances. Um, so I'm happy to say a bit more about the benefit conference and, and what it entails if, uh, if you have some questions about it. Yeah, exactly. So let's, let's discuss it. What do you plan and what the speakers are? Sure. Yeah, so, so the, the idea is that I've gathered a, a number of um, prominent uh, academics uh, and some famous writers to discuss the value of philosophy, and in particular, the value of philosophy in a time of crisis. Uh, so the keynotes uh, include uh, Margaret Atwood and Timothy Schneider. So Margaret Atwood, famously the author of The Handmaid's Tale, and Timothy Schneider is an uh, influential Uh, historian of Ukraine and Eastern Europe. And, and then I have invited a, a number of very prominent philosophers, uh, Philip Pettit, um, Kieran Setia, Judith Butler, 
a host of, of, of very prominent academics, Sally Haslanger, and they're going to talk about the relationship between their academic work and public philosophy and how their sort of academic background influenced their public work and influenced their ability to sort of engage in policy decisions and how their academic work has had an impact on public policy. And this benefit conference in some ways is meant to uh, support or will support the creation of a center for civic engagement at Kiev Mohila Academy. And this center for civic engagement is meant to embody the positive work academics can do for civil society more generally. So the funds we raise for this benefit event will support the volunteer work students are doing in Ukraine currently, say, for example, um, visiting elderly people whose family had either left the country or whose sons and daughters are fighting on the front line. Um, Students have been stalking shelters. Uh, Psychology professors have been talking to people who experienced the Russian occupation in Bucha and Irpin. A host of Ukrainian academics like yourself have been educating the international community about life and about uh, war in Ukraine. And the aim of the benefit event is to support the, the work publicly engaged academics and students are doing in Ukraine to support civil society, but also in some ways to educate the international community about what is currently happening in Ukraine. So the benefit event takes place uh, on the weekend of March 17th, 18th, and 19th. It's being broadcast on the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy's YouTube channel. Uh, And it's freely available so anybody can watch it. And we're just encouraging everybody who watches it to to make a donation to support the creation of this Center for Civic Engagement in Ukraine and to support students, scholars, and publicly engaged academics in Ukraine who are doing excellent work in very difficult circumstances. I think this is a great idea to support people who stay in Ukraine, and and um, I fully I fully agree with you that th- there is a lots of opportunities for people who left the country, and we understand that these people are actually most of them are young women with their children or without children, and they are in extremely difficult situation abroad. This is all very very difficult uh, to to be in another country without knowing the language, without knowing the circumstances. But it's also difficult to stay, obviously, in Ukraine under the constant missile strikes, artillery shelling, uh, air raid sirens. And in these circumstances, there's a vital need to continue education, both in secondary schools and in in universities. So that's a great idea. And uh, I really, really wish you good luck with it. Yeah, thank you very much, Vladimir. I, uh, like I said, it, in a way, my uh, desire to put this benefit conference together was based on, well, just the inspiration of the Ukrainian people. Um, I really saw when I was in Kiev over the summer how important maintaining a robust and lively and engaged civilian life is to you the general morale of of the country and potentially to to, to the war effort in Ukraine, um, maintaining a, a, a viable and lively and intellectually engaged 
community in Kiev and elsewhere, I think is very, is key to Ukraine's fight. And I'm trying to do what little I can to, to help support that. Because as I said at the beginning, I think that in many ways, what Ukraine is fighting for is, is what we potentially in the West and Canada have, have taken for granted. So I see Ukraine's fight and, and, and what civilians are doing and contributing to that fight as in some ways my fight. Thank you very much, Aaron. Thank you for this conversation. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org. Aaron Vendland was my guest. Uh, my name is Volodymyr Yermonk. I'm chief editor of Ukraine World. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. Uh, don't forget also to support us if you can on patreon.com slash ukraineworld. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine. <laughs>